0: Chapter 10 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 10 Astolfo restores his senses to Orlando. Whilst Rogero was searching for Angelica after the flight from Ebuda and could not find her owing to the power of the ring, his winged steed broke loose and returned straight to his old master, the magician Atlante, who soon afterwards got Rogero again in his power as already narrated. It befell in the meantime that Astolfo, the English duke, had been gifted with a wonderful horn, the virtue of which was such that when he blew a blast from it, every living thing, including the boldest warriors, were terrified, and fled from the sound with the utmost dismay. And with this horn, Astolfo had saved himself and his companions from many perils, and amongst others from the cruel ferocity of the Amazons. It chanced in his wanderings that Astolfo came to the enchanted palace of Atlante, in which he entrapped many knights and ladies to serve as companions to his fosterling Ruggiero. And at the blast of the horn everyone fled in terror, and the magician himself was not the last to shun the fearful noise by flight. In the stable, Astolfo found the flying horse, securely fastened by a strong chain of beaten gold. The English duke, as one that was to travel greatly bent, was delighted with his capture, for he was resolved to go about the wide world and visit many a sea and many a land by ways none had ever travelled before, for he knew by trial, as is told in another story, The wonderful powers of the flying horse, and he had been taught the way to guide and control its flight. Firm set in the saddle, he loosened the reins, and with incredible speed flew over Spain and the northern parts of Africa, and at the last, following the course of the Nile, he came to Ethiopia. Now, the people of that country were Christians, though in place of water they used fire for baptism. And their emperor was Senapol, and his rule extended as far as the mouth of the Red Sea on the east, and as far as the mountains of the moon on the west. When Astolfo came to the capital city, by name Nubia, he made the winged horse descend in great circles, so that he might see the place and visit the king. And he noted many strange sights, And he found that where in other lands the people use iron, as for bolts, bars, and hinges, here, for the same kinds of work, they made use of pure gold. And he found the columns of the palaces were cut out of the purest crystal, and on every side was an abundance of precious stones, the ruby, emerald, sapphire, and topaz and in the walls and roofs and even in the floors were set the richest pearls. Now, though this king was called by his own people and by the Egyptians, Senapo, by the Christians of Europe who had heard of his wealth and power, he was commonly called Prester John. At the time of the coming of Astolfo, this mighty emperor, in spite of all his wealth, was greatly afflicted. He had lost his sight and this was the least of his misfortunes, for he was furthermore punished by continual hunger. As soon as, driven by fasting and thirst, he tried to eat or drink, there suddenly flew down on his tables monstrous and filthy harpies, half birds and half women, and with talon and claw they spilt the wines and seized the food, and what they could not eat they defiled with their filth. Now the reason for the punishment of Sinapo was this, he had become so puffed up with pride that like Lucifer, he thought he could even make war on his maker, and with a great army he journeyed to the high mountain whence issues the great river of Egypt, and he had heard that on top of that mountain, above the clouds and near to the sky, was that paradise where Adam and Eve were created, which is called the earthly paradise and with camels and elephants and a mighty host of foot he began the ascent of the mountain to find if the summit was still inhabited and if it were so to make the people his subjects and god took vengeance on his rash daring and sent his angel and he slew a hundred thousand of the people and the king himself he condemned to perpetual night and god sent from their infernal cavern the horrid brood of harpies, to destroy his meat and drink, and load his tables with filth. And it had been foretold to Sinapo that his tables should never be freed from this evil pest, until there should come flying through the air a knight on a winged horse. And since such an event seemed impossible, the king was living without hope in endless gloom. Now, when the people of the place saw the horsemen flying above the walls and the most lofty towers, instantly the old prophecy came into their minds, and one ran to tell the king. And the king, in his great joy, forgetting to take his staff, groped along with hands outstretched to come at the flying knight, where he had descended in the great court of the palace. And when the king was guided to him, he fell on his knees "'and joined his hands in prayer. "'Angel of God,' he said, "'O new Messiah, "'though I do not deserve pardon for my so great offences, "'still let it be remembered that it is our nature to sin "'and yours to forgive when there is true repentance. "'My conscience is so stricken that I do not ask "'and would not dare to ask for the light of my eyes.' though well I know even that boon you could grant, being yourself so dear to God. Let it be punishment enough that I remain blinded and make me free from this everlasting hunger or at the least drive away the filthy harpies. And I vow to build for you a great temple, all of marble, with golden doors and golden roof, within and without adorned with precious gems and it shall be named by your name, and there shall be sculptures in it to declare for all time this your miracle. Thus spoke the blind king, and tried in vain to kiss the feet of the English duke, and quickly Astolfo answered, No, angel of God, no new Messiah am I, nor do I come from heaven. I too am mortal and full of sin, and not worthy of the grace accorded me. Yet will I do what I may to rid your kingdom of the monstrous pest by death or flight. And if I succeed, not to me give the praise, but to God, who for your aid directed my flight hither, and make your vows to God, and to God build churches and altars. And the words ended. The two went into the palace, accompanied by a crowd of nobles, and the king gave orders that at once a banquet should be prepared, in the hope that this time at least the food would not be snatched from his hands. In a gorgeous hall, the solemn feast was set out. With King Sanapo, there sat down only Duke Astolfo, when the viands were carried in. But, behold, through the air was heard the flapping of the horrible wings, and lo, The filthy, accursed harpies were drawn from the sky by the smell of the foods. Seven of them there were, and each one had the face of a woman, but pale and deathly, and with long hunger, thin and dry, more horrible to see than death itself. Huge wings they had, and on their greedy hands were talons curved and twisted, and the belly was swollen and fetid, and merged into the tail of a serpent that ever coiled and uncoiled its knots. Their coming through the air was heard far off. And then in an instant, all of them were seen on the tables, overturning the drinking vessels and seizing the viands. And the filth they shed was so noisome that none could bear the stench. Astolfo, urged by rage and anger, drew his sword on the greedy birds one he smote on the neck another on the flank this on the breast that on the wing but as well might he have struck on a bag of tow, so dulled and empty were his blows and the harpies left not a cup or plate untouched nor did they leave the hall before they had wasted and defiled all the banquet the king had centred all his hope in the duke and firmly believed that he would drive away the harpies And now that no hope was left, he sighed and groaned and fell into despair. And then there came into Astolfo's mind remembrance of his horn, which was wont to be his only resource in time of peril. And he thought to himself that by this horn it would be best to chase away the woman-birds. But first of all he made the king and all his barons close up their ears with melted wax lest when he blew the horn they should all be made to flee in terror from the castle. Then he took the reins in his hand and leapt to the saddle of the flying horse and by signs made the seneschal understand he was again to put fresh viands on the tables of another hall. So was it done, and behold, the harpies at their old mischief. Then on a sudden Astolfo blew a great blast. The woman-birds, with their ears open, could not stand the trial, but, filled with fear, they rushed away with no care for the food or anything but speedy flight. And after them flew the paladin, blowing his horn, and chasing the monsters through the air. And they took their flight to the lofty mountain, where the Nile has its source. And at the foot of the hill there was a deep opening, and it seemed to be one of the entrances by which sometimes a mortal man may find his way into the realm of Satan. Here the birds sought safety, and down they flew till, on the banks of Coxetus, the great stream of hell, they heard no more the dreadful sound. And at the smoky mouth of the pit the duke ceased to blow his horn and allowed his steed to fold his wings. When the paladin had driven the harpies into the gloomy cleft, he dismounted and stood, and listened, and within the pit the air throbbed and trembled with wailings and shrieks and the noises of eternal lamentation, and it was manifest that here was indeed an entrance to the infernal regions. And Astolfo thought to himself he would go within and visit the people who had lost the light of day, and would penetrate to the centre of the earth, and search round all the circles and chasms of hell. "'What am I to fear?' he said, "'if I enter. I can always find safety in my horn. With that I can put to flight Pluto and Satan, and drive from the way Cerberus, the three-mouthed dog.' He tied the winged horse to a tree, and then groped his way down into the cavern, not forgetting to take his horn in which lay all his hope of safety.' He had not gone far when nose and eyes were assailed by dense and noisome smoke, worse than from the burning of pitch and sulphur. But for all that, the paladin pressed on. But the further he went, the more dense grew the smoke and the soot, and it seemed to him that he could go no further, and that it would be hard to find his way back. As Astolfo was on the point of turning... He was aware of what seemed to be the likeness of a corpse left hanging to sway with the wind and rot in the sun. But the light was so feeble, scarce indeed was there light at all in that smoky and black pass, that the Duke could not make out for certain what the thing swinging in the smoke might be, and to make a trial he struck at it once or twice with his sword, and when he found it was like cutting a mist, he adjudged the thing to be a spirit. And forthwith he heard the voice of one complaining that he should add by his blows to the torment of the thick smoke and bidding him begone on his journey below. And the duke stood still in amazement and said, "'May God clip the wings of this smoke so that it no more reaches you. And if it please you, tell me of your plight. And if you will, that I should bear news of you to the world above, I am here to do your bidding.' And the shade made reply, So good, it seems to me, to return to the large and glorious light of day, if only in the breath of fame, that although it is very grievous to me, needs must the words be forced from me to tell you my name, and what I was, so that I may win so great a boon. And thereupon Lydia, who had been the daughter of the king of the country, called by that name, told to Astolfo her story. "'and it was a story of selfish ingratitude and deceit, "'and of the driving to death of a devoted lover. "'And therefore,' said the Shade, "'the black smoke draws tears from my eyes and stains my face, "'and so shall it be through all eternity, "'for in hell there is no redemption.' "'When the voice of Lydia had sunk into silence, "'the Duke tried to find out if there were others in that place.' but the sooty smoke that is the punishment given to the ungrateful was so dense in front of him that he could not go a span, and to save his life from the smoke he turned, and with rapid steps as quickly as he might, he clambered up the steep towards the opening of the cavern, and at last the air became a little less thick, and he began to see the broken light. And after much toil and trouble he escaped from the pit and left behind him the smoke and so that the way of return might be for ever denied to the greedy woman-birds he rolled to the mouth of the pit great stones and he cut down many trees and he filled with a thick hedge the mouth of the cavern and so well did he do the work that never again did the harpies come up on the earth the smoke of the black pitch had so defiled astolfo whilst he was in this hell's mouth that beneath his armour and through all his garments it had stained his skin so that his first care was to search for water, and he found in the forest at the foot of the lofty mountain a stream flowing from a rock, and he washed himself from head to foot. Then he mounted his flying horse and rose up in the air to reach the summit of the mountain, and he judged the highest peak to be not far from the circle of the moon. And by this time so great was his desire of new sights that he was no more content with the earth but aspired to journey in the sky. Higher and higher he rose, and at last he reached the topmost ridge. And the slopes were clad by flowers, sown by the wind, more beautiful than the richest gems, and so green was the grass, that here below it would outshine the emerald. Nor less lovely were the leaves of the trees, and the fruits and flowers with which they were bedecked, In the branches sang birds of varied colour, blue, white, green, red, and yellow. Murmuring streams and limpid pools were clear as crystal. A gentle breeze that ever blew from the same quarter, and with even strength, tempered the heat of the day, and robbing flower and fruit and verdure of their varied odours, mingled them in one sweetness that fed the soul with delight. In the midst of the table-land rose a very great palace that seemed to burn with living fire—such was the splendour shining from it beyond all mortal custom. With slow pacings Astolfo rode towards this palace, and here and there he looked with wonder on the lovely landscape, and it seemed to him that, in comparison, this noisome world wherein we dwell had been made by nature in an angry mood. So pleasant and bright and joyous was this other land. When he came near to the shining mansion, he stopped still with astonishment, for all the walls were cut from one pure gem glowing brighter than the carbuncle in redness. In the vestibule of this blessed abode there came to meet the duke an ancient man clad in a mantle, reddest of the red, and in a gown whitest of the white, and he was so venerable in aspect, with long white hair and beard, that he seemed to be one of the elect in paradise. With joyous mien he spoke to the paladin, who in reverence had sprung from the saddle, and said, Sir Knight, by the will of God you have ascended to this earthly paradise. And although you did not know the cause of your journey, nor the purpose of your desire, Yet believe that not without deep mystery are you come hither, far from your northern hemisphere. This long way you have come without counsel of any, so that you may take counsel with me how you may succour King Charles and save the holy faith from peril. Nor must you think, my son, that you have reached this height by your own virtue, for neither winged horse nor mighty horn were of any avail but for the will of God." and presently we will converse more at ease, and I will show you the way you shall go. But first of all you must come with me to refresh the body, for the long fast has made you weary. And then the venerable man said words that struck Astolfo with amazement, for he told him his name, and how that he was that John whom the Redeemer loved, and the writer of the Gospel called by his name." Of him the saying went out amongst the brethren, that he should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto Peter, He shall not die, but, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? And the disciples interpreted this saying to mean that John would not die. And without tasting death he was, indeed, brought up hither, and he found others before him, Enoch the patriarch and the great prophet Elijah who had never seen the last evening of life. Here, far from the pestilent and sinful air of our world, they shall enjoy eternal spring until the trumpets of the angel tell that Christ comes back on a cloud of glory. The paladin was welcomed by the saints and lodged in a well-garnished chamber, and likewise provision was made for the winged horse. And they gave to Astolfo of the fruits of paradise, and they were of such sweet savour that in his mind he made excuses for our first parents when they were tempted to eat. And after the paladin had satisfied his wants with food and repose, he rose up and found the disciple beloved of Christ awaiting him. And he took Astolfo by the hand and told him many things worthy of silence, and then went on, "'My son,' you do not know what is happening in France, although from thence you come. Learn then that your Orlando, because he turned from the right way the standards entrusted to him, has been punished by God, whose anger is most kindled against him whom most he loves, if he should sin. And your Orlando, to whom at his birth God gave the greatest might and the greatest courage and the superhuman power that no iron could wound him because he designed to make him defender of the holy faith as of old he had made samson the defender of the hebrews against the philistines this your orlando has rendered to his lord for so great benefits and evil recompense for when their need was sorest he deserted the faithful and the idolatrous love of a pagan woman had so blinded him that more than once he had tried with impious cruelty to kill his kinsmen who had kept the faith. And it is for this that God has made him go in the ways of madness and to show his nakedness, breast and flank and belly. And his senses are so blunted that he knows not others and he knows not himself. In such a manner we are told that God in old times punished Nebuchadnezzar who for seven years was made to eat grass like an ox. But inasmuch as the offence of the paladin was less than that of Nebuchadnezzar, his purgation of his sin is to endure but three months. Nor for any other purpose has it been granted you by our Redeemer to make so long a journey and to ascend to this place, except that you may learn from me how his senses may be restored to Orlando." "'and it is true that with me you must make yet another journey "'and leave the earth altogether. "'I am to lead you up to the circle of the moon, "'which of all the planets wanders nearest to us, "'because the remedy that is to make Orlando wise again "'is there locked up, "'and as soon as the moon appears to us this night, "'thither we will go. "'Of these and other things, "'the apostle talked to Astolfo all the day.' But when the sun had sunk into the sea, and above them the moon raised her horn, the chariot was got ready which was wont to be used to go through the paths of the sky. This was the chariot that once on a time had taken up Elijah from the eyes of the beholders. Four horses, many times redder than flames, the apostle joined to the yoke, and then with a beside him he took the reins and they rushed upwards. And soon they were in the midst of the sphere of eternal fire. But as they passed through, the venerable one by a miracle caused it to burn them not. And they passed through the sphere of fire and came to the realm of the moon. And for the most part, they found the surface shining like polished steel without any blot. And in extent, it was little less than this globe of ours with all its lands and seas. And here Astolfo had double cause for wonder. First, that this moon, which seems to us in its girth a little thing, should be a vast country. And next, that he must strain both eyes to see our earth with all its seas, for, having no light of its own, it throws off but feeble images. Up in this moon, different from ours, are the rivers and lakes and fields. Other than ours are the plains and valleys and mountains but they have their cities and castles and dwellings far larger than ever the paladin saw before or since, and there too are great forests where nymphs hunt wild beasts. But the paladin did not stay to search through all the place, because he had not been brought there except for a special purpose, and to this end he was guided by the holy apostle into a narrow valley between two mountains. And in this valley there is collected "'Whatsoever is lost here below, either by our own fault "'or by reason of time or fortune, "'whatsoever is lost here is there found. "'Lost kingdoms are there, and lost riches, "'for which the unstable wheel of fortune may be blamed. "'But other things there are which fortune can neither give nor take away. "'Much fame is there that time like a worm eats into and devours.' and infinite are the prayers and vows which men have made to God and broken. And there are the tears and sighs of lovers, and the useless hours lost in play, and the long idlenesses of ignorant men and the vain projects that were never put to proof. And so many are the vain desires of mortals that they almost fill the place. And, in brief, everything lost here below is found there above in this valley. And as they passed by the heaps of lost vanities, the paladin asked his guide of this and of that, and he was answered by the apostle, and numberless were our lost vanities. And the only thing not to be found there was the thing we think we never keep, but which never leaves us, and that is our own foolishness and the paladin found some of his own lost days and deeds, and but for his interpreter he would not have known they were his. And they came at last to the heap of the things that we think we never lose, but rather think that we always have in abundance, namely, what we call our senses, and of all the heaps, the heap of our lost senses is the greatest. Now our senses are made of a very soft and subtle liquor which unless it be closely shut up from the air, quickly wastes away in vapour. And therefore, all the lost senses that ascend to the moon are gathered up and stored in vials, some large and some small, according to the amount of the senses lost. And the largest of all these vessels, Astolfo found to have written on the outside, Senses of Orlando and in the same way all the other vials had the names written on them of the earthly losers of the senses. And the duke found that a large part of his own senses, unknown to himself, had come into this limbo, and of others also he found a mass of their senses, though he supposed they had never lost a grain. And the causes and the occasions of people losing their senses he found to be manifold, love, honour, the search for wealth, putting trust in princes and trust in magic, and collecting with overzeal gems and paintings, and great was the mass of the senses lost by philosophers and astrologers and by poets. The writer of the mysterious apocalypse permitted Astolfo to take the vessel that held his own lost wits, and he was told to open it and put it to his nostrils, and through the nostrils he breathed the lost senses again into his mind. But, as already narrated, the largest of all the vials was that named after Orlando, and this Astolfo took away with him, and he found it to be much heavier than he had thought. And after this, St. John showed to Astolfo many wonders, and greatest of all was the manner in which the records of the fame of mortals here below are for the most part drowned in the river of oblivion though some few attain to immortality. "'You must know,' said the man of God to Astolfo, "'that not a leaf can stir there below, "'but it makes something here above move in sympathy, "'though the appearances, on the earth and in the moon, "'to the eyes of man would seem quite different. "'In the moon, the things that on earth are subtle influences "'and are not seen, but only darkly imagined,' are here fashioned into moving shapes and figures and all their doings are plain to the eye and to astolfo were shown the fates ancient withered women spinning and weaving and severing the threads of the lives of mortals and he saw father time himself there in the moon an old old man for ever running and so quick and so nimble that he seemed by nature made only to run and the names of mortals, written on little tablets of buried metals, he gets from the fates, and with the tablets he fills the lap of his mantle and rushes to the river, that is the river of oblivion, and throws them in. And some of the tablets sink at once and are forever lost, and some are picked from the water by mean and ugly birds that fly about with them for a little in their beaks and then drop them for weariness.' And a very few are taken up by two sacred swans, and the swans glide through the water, or it may be fly through the air, till they bring the names they have chosen to a hill on the bank of the great river. And on the hill is a temple, and a nymph comes down to the bank of the river of oblivion, and takes the names from the mouths of the swans, and affixes them to an image raised on a lofty column and she consecrates them in such wise that there they may be seen to all eternity. And the crows and the vultures and the cormorants and the other mean and greedy birds that hover about the river and pick out some of the names are the shapes in the moon that answer to flatterers and informers and the whole tribe of gentle courtiers, who by nature are as gentle as the ass and the hog, And for a little while they keep the names of their patrons out of the river. But as the swans carry the names of the worthy to the temple of fame, so in the world below are the names of heroes made immortal by the poets. And as St. John called to mind the hard lot of the poets on the earth, how they must wait at the doors of the mighty with pale faces and hungry looks, and knock in vain for help, the eyes of the old man burned with the fire of indignation. For, said he to Astolfo, on your earth I too was a writer, but to me Christ has given a meet reward, and I grieve when I see the miserable lives of my fellow writers. And thereupon, with a wise laugh, he let fall his indignation and turned a serene countenance on the duke. And again the two mounted the fiery chariot and descended from the shining moon to the highest part of the mountain where is the earthly paradise, and Astolfo bore with him the vial with its remedy for the madness of the great master of war. And moreover, St. John gave to the English duke a herb of excellent virtue, whereby he should anoint the eyes of King Sinapo and restore to him his sight and he said to him that the king would give him a great army by way of reward, so that he might bring aid to the Christians for the destruction of Biserta, the capital city of King Agrimant. And he told Astolfo exactly how his senses were to be restored to Orlando. With these instructions and encouragements, St. John dismissed Astolfo, and he flew as fast as possible on his winged horse back to Nubia. Great was the joy of King Sinapo when he heard of the return of Astolfo, for well he remembered how he had chased away the harpies. And when Astolfo, with the precious herb, scaled away the thickness from his eyes and gave him back his former vision, the monarch would fain worship him as a god, and all that he asked and more than he asked he gave him, of men and camels and elephants for in his country there were no horses. Furthermore, the Apostle had instructed Astolfo, whilst he was with him in the earthly paradise, by what means he might transport this great army across the desert without being overwhelmed by the sands. And he had shown him how to provide his footmen with horses when they had passed the desert, and how to create a great navy which should destroy the remnants of the forces of Agramant, as they fled back to Africa. And in order that Astolfo might carry out these his orders, he had endowed him for the time being with some of his own miraculous power, and had instilled into his heart a faith that would remove mountains. And filled with this faith, and praying in this faith to God, Astolfo, as soon as he had crossed the desert, made horses out of stones rolling down a mountainside, and afterwards, when he had come near to Biserta, out of leaves cast into the sea, he made ships. When the better part of his Nubians had been provided in this manner with war-horses, Astolfo easily overran the country between the great deserts and Biserta, the capital of Agramant, and he defeated the kings to whom Agramant had entrusted the defence of his kingdom. And in exchange for one of them... He freed from captivity Dudon, the son of Augier the Dane, who had been captured by Rodomont below Monaco on his first arrival in France. And Rodomont had sent him captive to Africa, and he had remained there ever since. Now it chanced that just as Astolfo had come to the port nearest Biserta, into which he had driven the defeated Saracens, and just after, by faith and prayer, he had made his ships, There came sailing to Biserta, as it might be to a friendly port, the vessel which had been sent by Rodiment to carry to Africa another band of his prisoners. These were the paladins he had overthrown at the bridge, which he had built for the glory of Isabella. And as recorded in another place, he hung up their arms and armour on her tomb and sent the prisoners captive to Africa." On this vessel that now came to Biserta there was Brandimarte, the closest friend of Orlando and the lover of Flor d'Elise. And there was Oliver, Orlando's brother-in-law and very dear companion in arms, and Sansonetto and many others. And Astolfo was greatly rejoiced when he took from the Saracen vessel these renowned paladins to aid him in the attack on Biserta, And Dudon, the Dane, whom he had put in command of his new navy, was equally delighted, because he could obtain from them the latest news from France and learn best how he might help to drive the rest of the Saracens from Europe. And whilst the newcomers were eagerly conversing with Astolfo and Eudon, suddenly there was heard along the shore the clashing of weapons and loud outcries. In a moment, Astolfo and the rest had rushed to arms, and they hurried towards the place where the uproar was loudest, asking stray fugitives what was the cause and meaning of their flight. And when they reached the place where the confusion was greatest, there they found a man stark naked, who all alone had thrown the whole camp into disorder. In his hand he had wielded a great staff, and already he had killed more than a hundred and wounded many more, and none would venture to come near him. "'and from the distance they shot at him with arrows, "'but the arrows hurt him no more than if they had been pointless. "'The paladins marvelled greatly at the strength and powers of the savage man, "'when suddenly there came riding up to them on a palfrey "'a beautiful lady clad all in black, "'and straightway she rushed up to Brandimarte "'and threw both her arms round his neck and kissed him. "'This was Flor Flordelis,' "'at whose request Bradamont had overthrown Rodomont at the bridge "'and had obtained thereby the freedom of those "'who had been sent captive to Africa. "'And when Flordelis had reached the African shore in a swift ship, "'she heard that Astolfo was besieging Besserta, "'and she heard also an uncertain rumour "'that her lover Brandimarte was with him. "'And great was their joy when they met after so long a separation, "'and regardless of all else.' they embraced again and again. But meanwhile, the naked savage with his huge staff was coming nearer and driving the soldiery before him, and as soon as Flordelis set eyes on him, she cried out, "'That is Orlando!' for she had seen him in his madness, struggling with Rodomont on the bridge, and seen them both together hurled into the water, and she knew the paladin again, in spite of his blackened skin and tangled hair." And at the same time, Astolfo recalled what had been said to him by St. John of the manner in which he should find Orlando. But the others would never have dreamed this was the knightly Orlando, who seemed more like a wild beast than a man in form and face. And when they knew indeed that it was Orlando, afflicted by so dreadful a calamity, they were moved to tears. But Astolfo said to them, this is no time for lamentations, but a time for deeds. We must find a way to bring him back to reason. And one and all fixed their eyes upon him and advanced to take him. But when Orlando saw the circle round him drawing closer, he shook his staff with greater fury. First he aimed a blow at Dudon, who tried to reach him under the cover of his shield, and if Oliver had not partly broken the blow by his sword, it would certainly have crashed through the shield of Dudon and broken alike helmet, head, and breast. As it was, the blow shattered the shield and fell so heavily on the helmet that Dudon was stunned and fell to the ground. Then Sansonetto, with his sword, cut away more than two elves length of the huge staff, and Brandimarti, rushing in, seized the madman round the middle with both arms and Astolfo at the same time seized his legs. But Orlando shook himself, and threw Astolfo to the ground ten paces off, though Brandemarte did not lose his hold. Next Orlando struck Oliver so hard a blow that he also fell stunned to earth, with blood flowing from nose and eyes, and but for his good helmet he would have been slain outright. In a little, Astolfo and Dudon and Sansonetto, though sorely bruised, came again to seize Orlando, and Dudon tried to give him a restless fall with his foot, whilst Astolfo and the rest took him by the arms. They could not hold him, and like a bull which feels the fangs of the dogs in his ears and rushes along with the dogs upon him, so Orlando carried with him the clinging paladins. Meanwhile, Oliver had risen from the ground, though weak and bleeding, and he bethought him of a better way to get command over Orlando, and he caused ropes to be brought, more than one, and of great strength. And on the ropes he made running knots, and he threw the ropes, so that some caught the madman round the arms, and others round the legs, and the ends of the rope he gave to this one and that, and at last they pulled him to the ground, like an ox in the slaughterhouse. And when he was on the ground, they bound him more firmly, feet and hands. And in vain Orlando shook himself, and tried to break his bonds. Then Astolfo commanded that he should be taken thence to be cured of his madness. And Dudon, who was a giant in strength, took him up on his back, and he carried him by Astolfo's guidance to the edge of the sand. And seven times they plunged him in the sea, and held him under the waves, so that the grime of his madness might be washed from his face and body. Next Astolfo gathered certain herbs, as he had been told by St. John, and these he stuffed into Orlando's mouth, so that only through the nostrils could he breathe. Astolfo then made ready the vial in which were enclosed the senses of Orlando, and he put it beneath his nostrils, so that perforce when it was opened the madman breathed up all the subtle vapour. And wonderful to tell! On the instant his mind returned to its former habit, "'and he got back discourse of reason. "'And as a man who is awakened from a troubled dream "'in which he has seen the shapes that are not "'and never can be, "'or something horrible and strange, "'is filled with wonder when sleep leaves him "'and he gets back his senses, "'so was it with Orlando "'when he had been drawn out of his madness. "'He remained stupefied with wonder, "'and he looked from one to another of the paladins, "'and without speaking tried to think how and when he had come to such a pass and he rolled his eyes hither and thither and could not imagine where he was and he marvelled to see himself naked and bound from shoulders to feet with tough ropes then he said to those about him loose me and his look was so calm and his countenance so serene that at once they unbound him and they brought to him garments, and they comforted him in the grief that oppressed him for his past sinfulness. And when Orlando had been thus restored to his right mind, more than ever before he became wise and manly, and he found himself perfectly freed from the bonds of his love for Angelica, so that she whom before he had thought so beautiful and gentle, and whom he had so passionately loved, now seemed to him a thing of naught, and he set himself to win back the honour which he had lost through his passion. And the next day, Dudon set sail with the fleet in search of Agrimant, and Orlando remained with Astolfo to besiege Biserta, And though with his old wisdom and valour, Orlando was again first in council and in battle, yet he gave all the honour of the command to Astolfo. And in the end, Biserta was sacked and set on fire. End of chapter 10